economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, we have a fun one today. We're going to do a little more faith-oriented one and philosophy-oriented one, I guess, uh, with the problem of evil. So just because they both begin with E is economics evil, the problem of economics and evil or something. But uh, Justin, you want to start us off here with the problem of evil. Okay, so uh, the problem of evil uh, rears its head in a bunch of different places and people kind of use this, the problem of evil to do different things. But, um, you know, one of the most basic formulations you find is in uh, David Hume, and he credits the credits it to Epicurus. And you can find a, a quotation of it on, I think even on like Wikipedia, if you look up problem of evil, which is just, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able, then he is not omnipotent. Is he able to prevent uh, evil but not willing? Then he's not uh, beneficent. Then he's malevolent. Or is he both able and willing to prevent evil? Then whence comes evil? Like then you know why the why do we have all this evil? Uh, why does evil exist? So on the one hand, you might think it's it's just a problem to try to square the existence of an omniscient, um, uh, omniscient, benevolent, and. Uh, omnipotent God with the fact that evil exists in the world. Uh, other people, so sometimes religious philosophers take the problem of evil as a jumping off point to then explain evil. And this is usually called a theodicy. Other, uh, other people take the problem of evil as a proof that God doesn't exist because they say, you know, if God is omnipotent and, and omniscient and benevolent, then evil wouldn't exist, but evil obviously does exist. Therefore, there is no being that has all these qualities or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that in a nutshell is what the problem is and really quickly, you know, how, how it gets used. Yeah, I think one of the things that it specifically relates to economics is it can even be taken to the step of both evil and then suffering more generally too, is how could it be the case, you know, maybe no one did anything morally wrong and yet there are people who are starving out there. It, and this kind of relates to an earlier podcast episode about the relationship between God and scarcity, right? How could it be that God gives us a world of scarcity, even though he was powerful enough, omnipotent, so therefore powerful enough to make a world without scarcity? And so squaring that uh, is also a problem that relates pretty heavily to economics, I'd say. Yeah, and, and relating it back to the suffering thing, some people, so some people try to explain the problem of evil in terms of, you know, human choices, but uh, it can also be formulated and you know, some philosophers formulate it in terms of like animal suffering too, right? They'll say, you know, look, a, a light, lightning will strike a, a dead tree somewhere in the forest and um, it'll end up burning this deer who will, you know, live three more days of, you know, incredible amount of suffering before, you know, the deer dies. And this kind of thing happens in nature all the time. Therefore, you know, it's, it's not just in the human realm that we're talking about um, suffering or, you know, evil, which whichever 
whichever kind of bad thing you want to try to explain. So Justin, I, I've always kind of, in order to solve the problem of evil for myself, and you can tell me what you think of this, I've always gone to, uh, I believe the first time I, I heard this sort of reasoning that I, I find convincing was from um, an apologist, William Lane Craig, though I have heard it other places, so I don't think it's original to him. But his uh, comment is that um, when you take it to be that there must be no God, and so that direction of the problem of evil, that is, you know, if God's both omnipotent and omniscient, then how can he allow evil to exist? And because he does, then there must be no God. And William Lane Craig's point, and once again, I think I've heard others say the same, is that that doesn't prove that there's no God. It only proves that there's morally sufficient reason for God to allow evil to exist. And so the way that we could think of this, like biblically, biblically for example, is that maybe it's a better thing, actually, that humanity be broken and redeemed rather than not broken in the first place. Do you see that as being something that kind of helps square the problem of evil at all? Or do you think that presents its own challenges? What, what's your take on that view of the problem of evil? So you're right. A lot of people do try to answer the problem of evil by saying something like either in general, you know, we, uh, God allows this uh, amount of evil N in the world such that as a result of this amount and evil being in the world, it actually brings about an even greater amount of goodness so N plus whatever. Right. And that way is, is kind of saying like, well, you know, look in a world where, um, you know, no one is ever suffering, you would never have, uh, you know, the opportunity to, to help someone who's suffering. Right. And maybe, uh, you know, the, uh, the goodness that results from us striving to, um, to, fight evil or, or meet evil or meet suffering, uh, maybe that outweighs the amount of suffering generally. Is that kind of the approach that you're yeah, articulating? Yeah, I, I, I think that's right, is that for whatever reason, God is the ultimate arbitrator of like good and bad, and he's like omniscient. So he knows what the, you know, if we could quantify all the good and bad in the world, what the total good, uh, when the total good is greatest. And it must be that for whatever reason, maybe we don't understand it, that the total good is greater when actually some evil is allowed in the world when there is no evil allowed in the world. Uh, that's, that's sort of the way that I take it. And so that uh, has been used as a solution to maybe like what is sometimes called the philosophical problem of evil, or I, I don't know if you would use that word, uh, but there's also a different level of the problem of evil that I've heard, which is it's often described to there's an emotional problem of evil, which is that people don't like that there's evil and suffering in the world. And personally, I think a lot of the solution to that problem is in Jesus and Jesus coming and saving people. And that kind of cures some of the emotional problem of evil. But Russ, do you have any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on Jesus and the, the problem of evil? Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Jesus is the ultimate answer to the problem of evil. And more importantly, part of God's overall plan for existence. So I would come back to tying this into free will, our previous podcasts on whether or not free will exists or determinism and all that fun stuff we we walk through. And so if God is wanting a creation that truly has true love and true belief to get there, he started off his experiment. <laughs> Here we go, Russ, with original sin and people with free will to unchoose him even as he reaches out to them. And so I think God has created a bind. I think an all powerful, all knowing entity of God can create a binding constraint on himself 
which does not diminish his omnipotence. And that was part of creation uh, so that he could figure out true love from his creation. And so starting off with a sinful nature and the problems that we have in the world of, of evil, um, people can uh, develop a relationship with Jesus. And ultimately, those are the folks that will move on to uh, the second earth and the, uh, the new uh, beginnings um, in the next life um, for eternity. And that was just part of the overall plan was having this existence of evil that doesn't take away. And then I agree with what you guys are saying with how do you know who's good if there isn't bad and all of that stuff. But that was the or part of the original plan. And I think that falls in biblical lines too, from Genesis to Revelation. So that's my thought here, working free will <clears throat> into it. So Justin, go ahead and pick me apart with, <laughs> since I'm just the armchair philosopher. <laughs> okay, yeah. In addition to the, um, the line of attack that Peter was saying earlier, some people try to get a little bit uh, more specific in exactly how that amount of good outweighs the amount of evil that's allowed. And one of the ways they try to do that is they say, well, um, you know, like Russ was saying in the beginning of what he said before he went completely crazy. <laughs> uh, so Russ was saying something like, you know, God, ha it's more, it's better if God creates people that are free. And uh, so this approach says something like, well, it is a morally better world when we have people that actually have libertarian free will um, in the strong sense, right? And in order to have people with libertarian free will, that, that entails that they have the ability to do evil, right? That's mm -hmm. just what libertarian free will is. It's that you are therefore have the it's ability. It's part of your choice set, right? It's part of yeah. your choice set that, 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 that option is truly open to you to do. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, since it's a better world when we have libertarian free will, the amount of suffering um, that we see in the world with libertarian free will, assuming that we have libertarian free will, therefore, you know, is something like necessary for uh, the goodness of the world that we have right now. Now, why I don't see that this approach works, uh, or like, if you didn't think this approach worked, here's what you would say. You would say, okay, so now you have explained how this omnipotent, omniscient being, why, they, why there is evil in the world, because they create us, because God created us with something like free will. But you might have done so at the expense of omniscience. Because something like libertarian free will, you might, there might be a conflict between an omniscient God and something like libertarian free will. Um, if uh, there is a sense in which you really could do differently and God doesn't know ahead of time what you're going to do. So uh, you might be it might raise another tension there and that tension might be pretty hard to meet. So uh, and that's where I get into my binding. <clears throat> God is able to bind himself bound, create a boundary that, okay, for this particular thing, I could undo it in the snap of a finger, but why would I? Right. Because to know everything is to know nothing. 
Again, that doesn't make sense, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think, think it's the most profound thing I've ever come up with, but maybe that's too strong, I guess. Uh, I better watch out. <laughs> I, think you're, I think there's an argument to be made about the binding thing, that that makes sense. I also think there's an argument to be made that that somehow diminishes some kind of uh, omnipotence. I, what I think that actually shows is that we don't really have a, have a clear understanding of what omnipotence would mean, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's the same thing for omniscience too. Um, so my solution to the problem of evil is just that we are trying uh, to stipulate what this being must be like who is omniscient and omnipotent and then say that's inconsistent with what we see in the world. But when we look at the attributes that we are uh, saying that this being is omniscient and omnipotent has, we don't really understand those attributes very well. So yeah. it's, it seems uh, preposterous to me to say that our understanding of what this being must be like necessarily refutes this being's existence based on what we see. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, the, that's the hole that I'm trying to poke at not so eloquently. And, and where I hang my hat on this is to try to go back to look for biblical evidence if, if it's possible that it, that it could be, you know, dispelled. But an an all-knowing being doesn't necessarily mean that they can't choose to not look forward into the future. That somehow the using the box analogy, analogy that here's our lifespan from birth to death, and somehow God's outside of time, looking at, knows everything, every hair on our head. And I know some of the Bible verses, I've tried to study this off and on for, for quite a few years now, but that is usually the perception we have of the all-knowing, all-loving, that it's all complete. And to me, somebody with that type of knowledge or uh, an entity, if you will, God with that type of knowledge, they can certainly choose to not use that power, that superpower. It's like Superman choosing not to fly. Maybe that's a good way. That's a new one for me. So you've got the ability to fly, but you choose not to use that power for a purpose, for a plan. And that plan is humanity. Well, circling back to, to Justin, and I'll move forward to kind of Russ's point just now, is I like what Justin said now, because in a way you're channeling St. Paul from, you know, thousands of years ago, and you may not even know it. Oh, and <laughs> hope, you probably do, but Paul has this great piece in Romans that's often labeled like Paul's doxology in Romans. And like a piece of the doxology is who knows the mind of our God and who can bring counsel to him, who is given to God that uh, God should repay him for from him, through him, to him is everything basically being exactly what Justin said, um, which is that God's mind is beyond our comprehension. Mm -hmm. And so to try to both claim that we can grasp what it means to be omnipotent and omniscient, and then say what God should do, even if he has those two qualities that there's no way we understand anyways, it, it's certainly not an exercise in humility to do that. Uh, I think it's uh, extremely uh, pretentious. I think there's a lot of pretense that goes into it. And I would say, you know, I, I come at it from a different angle than Russ. I don't know if you would say I believe in free will or not. It kind of depends on how you define it. And I wasn't part of the, the, <laughs> the, the podcast back then. Oh, we'll uh, have to go back through that one again. But, but I would say... Lord help us. <laughs> I would say God creates people who are responsible for their actions. Uh, whether or not you think that responsibility is attached to something called free will, I'm not exactly sure. Here, here's what I would say is that because we can't understand God, even if God created us and knew everything that we would ever do and created us in such a way that we couldn't do otherwise. So this would not be the libertarian free will. 
I still don't think this is a big issue for God. It's not like we can poke morally at God and said, you're doing the wrong thing. Again, we go to Paul in <laughs> Romans and he says, you know, what right has the clay to have to the potter to say, why have you made me this way? Uh, in other words, you know, God made us. What right do we have to say to him, you know, why did you make me this way instead of some other way? It's, it's ridiculous to think of a, a pot talking back to a potter. And I think it's ridiculous for uh, the idea that creation can somehow, um, by its own definitions, talk to an omniscient and omnipotent God and tell him what he's wrong about. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I'm in total sympathy with that. And uh, when, when Russ, Russ, you were saying, you know, you, you look for biblical evidence for a position on this too. I think, you know, you can also just look back and say, okay, well, according to the Bible, what does God allow? And what does, you know, does God ever allow suffering in the Bible? And you go, well, you know, Ecclesiastes seems pretty dark in places. Uh, (laughs) Job is certainly not a story of somebody who never suffers, you know, so. Right. That we can stipulate what God ought to be in stark contrast to, you know, the biblical stories that say, this is what God did. That, that just seems wildly sophomoric to me that you could disprove the existence of God with this four-step proof. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this looks like a good spot for a break. And when we come back, I want to uh, challenge you guys to think uh, who are we to question God, but, Uh, maybe we need to have some answers for those tough questions in our effort to increase the flock and talk to non-believers. So we'll pick it up from there after the break. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their career, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audience will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gorton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Here at Ottawa, uh, for instance, we have student programming of a movie night, Little Pink Houses, coming up this term, where it looks at government's eminent domain powers and the taking of private property over in New Jersey. We also have Dr. Brian Kaplan uh, speaking from George Mason University on open immigration and immigration policy. So those are the types of programs, just a sample of some of the things we do here at Ottawa University. So if you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right, so we're back. The challenge, the gauntlet I was throwing out was to think about how we might need to use the challenge to, of reason and answers to some of these questions as we go out in the world and trying to... Uh, increase the flock uh, with the call of uh, Matthew and go and make disciples of all nations. So Peter, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I think this is an important distinction that we kind of alluded to earlier in the call that there's a difference between sort of this academic philosophical problem of evil and what is oftentimes called like an emotional problem of evil. And so the emotional problem of evil is something like someone is actually going through a moment of suffering in their lives, intense suffering, you know, like Job is a really great example of this, you know, families being destroyed, you know, getting sick, all of his properties being destroyed, 
uh, previously had a, a very you know pleasant life. And so people go through these things all the time in their real lives. This is something that happens in the world. And so what we could say is we could say, well, be quiet. Don't talk back to God. Like, and that's <laughs> sort of like the academic answer we just gave. But I actually don't think that's appropriate because this person isn't really asking, how could it logically be the case uh, that this is compatible? It's how could this happen to me with the loving God? Why would a loving God allow this to happen to me? And I think here, Christian, you know, our last answer could apply to a lot of faiths. You know, a lot of faiths could say, well, don't talk back to God, which I think is an appropriate response to the logical problem. But Christianity has a very specific advantage is that when someone talks about, you know, I'm suffering, uh, why does God allow this is at least in Christianity, we have this, this option of offering sort of sympathy. That is the creator specifically can be sympathetic to the person. And why is that? Well, it's because the person of God, you know, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity came to earth and suffered immensely. And you could say even suffered the greatest injustice that anyone ever has, because this is someone who is perfectly good, who did nothing wrong, who was basically tortured and killed. Um, and so, and tortured and killed for you. And so when someone is encountering this emotional problem, it, the, the person of Jesus is a very good remedy to this because you can say, I know this is awful and someone else knows this is awful. You know, Jesus went through this and Jesus did it for you. And I think uh, both of those uh, two, two things that he went through it and he went through it for us. And so in a way, God can sympathize, which is an amazing idea, sympathize with humanity. I think that sort of can cure the ails of the problem of suffering. You know, it, you, you've, you've suffered a lot, but so has God. Can also add to that that you know if we're looking for things that you might tell somebody who is concerned about the existence of suffering and you're uh, trying to at least point them in a direction that Christianity is, has some kind of answer to this, you might point them to organizations that are have, devoting their lives to relieving suffering. And uh, you know if you just want to go look back at you know the history of you know the saints of the church or uh, you know, who started the first hospitals, people who are willing to live among the lepers and be, be ministers to them. And um, you just have a, a very long history in Christianity of people caring about suffering and willing to make sacrifices to help relieve the suffering of others. And it seems like a faith that takes suffering so seriously and is so motivated uh, to help their fellow fellow beings when they are suffering the fact that the faith not only has an academic answer and even an emotional personal answer, but a practical answer about what to do when we're faced with suffering um, and that it's your duty to help people who are suffering, that that might be something worth mentioning too. Another thing I wanted to circle back to that I think ties into this discussion is <clears throat> how the suffering part is going to be relatively small to the good and glory uh, for eternity. And so I think C.S. Lewis, I, I think it was The Great Divorce, but I'm not sure, uh, talked about the bus and the bus stop. Do you recall that, Peter, at all? Or does that ring a bell? Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it was in, but so, yeah, I recall that. So the, his idea was um, that we're suffering now, but now is a finite period of time. And so when uh, the second coming of Jesus and the new heavens and new earth and we're living for eternity. You've got an eternity, an infinite, infinite amount of time that's just going to dwarf the finite amount of time that we're living in now and, and uh, uh, however, whatever arguments we want to have on how long that's been of, of a period of time, you still have infinity outweighing some finite period of time. And so <clears throat> I think that 
maybe can be comforting, but you have to get to the belief level for that one to be comforting. Whereas, but I, I think that's part of the answer to uh, the suffering question is that the long-term game plan is we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna be on this bus to go back to C.S. Lewis and we're gonna be going a long ways and so many years and years are gonna pass that we're, gonna, we're still gonna have grief maybe for our loved ones who didn't make it to the next new heaven and new earth, but we will have so many experiences outweighing that it, it just is gonna be such a distant thing that it's not gonna be as painful as it is today with the suffering and grief that we're feeling whether that's for other people or, or uh, things that have happened to us. So that kind of came to mind as, as we were talking about the weighing of N and N plus one of benefits and uh, evils. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. And the, the nice thing at the time when Christianity started to pick up steam and develop it as a faith and the, the teachings got out there is that was also relatively unique and I don't mean that that the hope provided that no one had ever talked about an afterlife before, but you know, it wasn't clear in you know different you know of the gods of the time in the society that you know that those gods would bring you to some paradise. Some people believed some way one way, some people believed another way. And in fact, even the there was disagreement amongst the Jewish scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had different ideas about whether or not we would have any sort of afterlife or whether this is it. Um, and so that hope was really unique to, to Christianity. And, and so that's a, a great message that Christianity has uh, because it's true, A, but also it provides a lot of hope. Uh, and another way, I think, uh, on this note and related to something Justin was just talking about is Christianity also was different for the time because a lot of times um, suffering in the world before Christ came and sort of uh, gave his teachings was addressed as it, suffering must be your fault. And so it, mm -hmm. and in a way, Christianity agrees with that, but we'll, I'll get to that in just a second is, you know, there's the great passage in the Bible where the apostles ask, what caused this man to be blind? Who sinned so that this man would be blind? And Jesus basically says, no, no, it's not like that. Like, you know, it's not that this man committed the sin and then he went blind because of it or that his parents did that and he went blind because of it. Uh, inst instead of, you know, laying the suffering at the person's feet, uh, Jesus sort of acknowledges that everyone is sort of responsible for suffering in a way because we all contribute to sin, but that we're, despite that, because God says we are, we're worthy of grace and we're worthy of mercy. And so because of that, people go out and they, Christians at the time, they would help the sick and help the poor. They wouldn't say it's your fault because there's sort of a, a, a recognition in Christianity that uh, we're all, we've all fallen short of God. And so it's all of our faults, but that doesn't uh, mean that we shouldn't try to relieve suffering. And that's really what Jesus showed in his mission. Justin, I wanted to throw back to you. I always like to bring Thomas Sowell in <laughs> if I can. And I can't help but think of the conflict of visions slightly. I mean, I know that's a little bit oh, yeah. external, but I, I think the, the, the view or the vision of, of man on earth um, is somewhat related to this. And I, I don't know if that was enough of a nudge to you, Justin, to take that. And I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts because I know you know the conflict of visions much better than I but I felt like there's a tie here on addressing the problem of evil, if nothing else, um, the way Thomas Sowell looks at our perceptions of man. I think there's something there in the sense that, you know, one of the things I was saying earlier was that we don't really have a good conception of what a, uh, a perfectly omniscient or perfectly om omnipotent being would be. And I don't think we have a very good idea of what, a perfect almost anything is, but one of the problems with the total vision of society or uh, 
you know, the unconstrained vision of society is that it is this attempt to kind of first formulate a perfect picture of society and what society would be were it perfected, and then to try to shoehorn our current society into that mold where uh, it might not fit. And so we might say something like, actually, looking back at history and custom and things that actually have worked for the kind of beings we are, um, imperfect as we are, and maybe not even perfectable, right? That that is a much better way to try to organize society rather than trying to perfect these, you know, beings like us who are, you know, broken and imperfect and, and imperfect. I think this, this uh, connection for us that you made and Justin, you just expounded upon is actually very significant. Um, and the, the reason it's significant is it connects sort of our Christianity, even though sometimes it goes the other way, our Christianity can tell us something about what we think about economics. What, what I'm getting at here is, you know, there's this, uh, the unconstrained vision of man taken its, to its cons- extreme is something like Marxism and communism and socialism and the idea of socialist man. That if we just configure the rules of the game and the institutions properly, that man will transcend his selfishness, transcend, become a, a perfectly good person who can operate exactly how we want him to. In, yeah, in be this. allowed to be the good person that they are. Yeah, exactly. Right. They're, and they're basically perfection for society is achieved because we've allowed communism to flourish and this has created perfect men. Well, I think a Christian should be very sus- suspicious of this because that's an unconstrained view of the world. And Christianity has a constrained view of the world. That is, there has been a fall. And so we shouldn't expect heaven to come on earth. That's actually exactly what Jesus talked against is that, you know, you know, we, we can sort of act and, you know, try to bring the kingdom of heaven down by doing our good actions, but we should never expect in this world that things are going to be perfect. So actually, you know, I would say a Christian should be very skeptical of Marxism for this very reason of the idea of the unconstrained versus constrained world. Mm-hmm. And that it's better to, organized society with rules assuming people will look in their own interest or potentially be even completely selfish um, and uh, have the rules of the game set up accordingly uh, that way. That's right. Yeah. Let's not assume men are angels because we know that they're not. (laughs) Assume that people will break the rules too. Yes. Yeah. And break the rules. Yeah. And yeah. So as far as getting, Sound property rights, rule of law, good court system, all those foundational principles. And then look what happens. Uh, The evidence that we see from Jim Gortney's work with the Economic Freedom Index of the world is that places that have more sound rules of the game uh, in terms of even money in the court system, police system, not corrupt, allowing more individual economic freedom, but yet having a good how should I say, hardline rule of law that everybody's treated with the, with the same principles, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, man or woman. Uh, that's what the index attempts to do. We see better social outcomes from those countries in general, better access to drinking water, longer life expectancy, lower infant mortality rates, less poverty. And so by assuming that constrained vision or the Christian view that we have sin in the world and that your only way out of it is through Christ, by making those assumptions and setting up your government with those sorts of laws and rules in mind, we end up having more flourishing uh, than places who move a different direction. Well, that looks like a pretty good place to close today. Any final thoughts from, from anyone here? Have we solved the problem of evil? Gosh, it only took us about 30 minutes. So (laughs) I guess we're right on par with all the other 
problems that we've solved in society uh, through this podcast. So on behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, we'd like to thank you all for listening and appreciate your support that way of passing the word. If you like what you hear, be sure to give us a five-star rating on the app store uh, so that other people can find us in the search engines faster and get this type of content. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.